This is now the second part of our discussion of Andrea Wolf's Humboldt biography, The Invention of Nature. I'm again joined by Cody Commerce, a fellow PhD student, podcaster, and uh, reader of this book, I guess. Um, <laughs> awesome. Looking forward to talking about these uh, these sections, Ben. Cool. Yeah, today, yeah, maybe that's, uh, we're discussing section parts three and four. And as always, I'll have a brief two, three sentence summary per chapter. Chapter nine, Humboldt returns to Europe and settles in Paris. He brings a huge collection of unknown species and enjoys his fame. He talks to Simon Bolivar about a potential revolution in South America without actually encouraging him to be the leader. Chapter 10, Humboldt moves to Berlin due to politics rather than preference. He writes several books, including Essay on the Geography of Plants, which was admired by Goethe, and Views of Nature, which was loved by many, including Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Charles Darwin, and Jules Verne. He goes to Paris on a political assignment for the King of Prussia, but decides to actually stay there. Chapter 11, against his brother's wishes, Humboldt stays in Paris during the Napoleonic Wars, he enjoys great fame and respect, working all the time on his books, correspondence, experiments, and giving talks. He wants to leave Europe, though, for another expedition. Chapter 12, Simon Bolivar starts a revolution in South America to free South America from the Spanish colonists, inspired by Humboldt's writing and aided by Humboldt's maps of South America. Chapter 13, Humboldt stays in London to get permission from the East India Company to be allowed to explore India and climb the Himalaya. His request is denied, probably due to Humboldt's explicit and strong negative opinions on colonization. Chapter 14, Humboldt is given permission and finances the travel to India, only to have the permission taken away again. He is still widely admired, meets many famous and influential people, but is poor and forced to move back to Berlin. Chapter 15, Humboldt spends most of his time in Berlin entertaining the king, Friedrich Wilhelm III. He also gives a very popular lecture series to the public. Almost three decades after his travels to South America, Humboldt receives an invitation from Tsar Nicholas I for an all-expenses-paid expedition through Russia. Chapter 16, Humboldt travels through Russia all the way to where the borders of Russia, China, and Mongolia meet. On the way, he celebrates his 60th birthday with Vladimir Lenin's grandfather and returns to Moscow and Berlin, the expedition having been a great success. Chapter 17, in 1831, inspired by Humboldt both for the journey itself and in his description of the journey, Darwin boards the Beagle for an around-the-world trip with lengthy stays in South America. Chapter 18, in his 70s, Humboldt publishes Cosmos. The first book spans the universe, earth, and all living creatures, and the second book focuses on human history. The books were a total success among all parts of society, from scientists to the general population. And finally, chapter 19, inspired by Humboldt's cosmos, Henry David Thoreau becomes a serious writer and rewrites Walden to its current form. That's quite a lot of chapters. No, we really covered the, the majority of, of Humboldt's life here. So yeah, exactly. where, we, where we finished off at the end of discussion one was he just come back from South America, very much a young man, very much this, this big, you know, expedition that he undertook. And now this is just him living out his life as a consequence, essentially, of having under, undertaken this one initial big, magnificent adventure. And sort of bookended by his Russia adventure, which was his second big adventure, which was really 30, like three decades after after his first travel, big travel. And then his magnum opus, Cosmos. So we, uh, we, we sort of see the whole, you know, sort of middle part of his life in these sections. I mean, it's basically years 30 to 70-something, right? Roughly that. 
Yeah. So let's see. I think there's one thing that I want to... There's a kind of couple things that stood out to me about when he came back to Europe, particularly when he he came back to to Berlin. And that's one thing is that I I partially want to kind of just like plant a seed of now we can come back to after we've talked about everything that he's he's went through uh he he went through and his his influence on darwin and and henry david thoreau and these other incredible people and i think that part of what was so impactful about his trip was the, the one to south america the big you know sort of initial thing that put him on the map was was in a word magnitude he simply went farther than anyone else had and collected more than anyone else had yeah and I think what we're going to see as we talk about Darwin and, and a lot of this stuff is that it, it really provided, in a sense, raw data for for people to work with and to also provide a template for what people were going to do in the future. And I also think for us, for us young academics and, and people who are you know interested in, in this this kind of world and everything, I think Humboldt is also. A, a a lesson, a very representative lesson, and how a single good study conducted in one's twenties can sustain an entire career, because this is what he did. He did one big yeah. exposition, and then he spent the next thirty years talking about it, and people fucking loved it. Yeah, I find that crazy too, and the same in some sense applied at least in the beginning to Darwin. Also, they they went on this trip, both financed by their parents, essentially. And then suddenly, though, everyone wants to talk to them about all their great findings. I mean, I guess, you know, as we discussed last part, it's very difficult to do that stuff and all these kind of things, of course. But effectively, he yeah, spent five years going on an adventure and suddenly he was a scientific superstar almost. Absolutely. Not only it's, scientific, I mean, just general superstar, it seemed. Yeah, it's not like he was constantly traveling for his entire life. No, he had one really big travel adventure and on that basis, which admittedly, like, you know, he did, he, he, like, what he was spending that 30 years doing was a lot of sifting through what he had found, both in terms of the physical specimens and the intellectual concepts and everything like that. So he was, he, he was productive during that five years, but it's just so funny how uh, it was just this one big thing that he was cashing in on for his entire career. And in many ways, I suspect that is kind of, that is like, that 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 resembles a lot of academic trajectories, is that you have one really significant idea, uh, usually, <clears throat> excuse me, in your 20s, and then you kind of spend the next 20 so years like rearranging adjacent ideas and elaborating on that and telling people what what the the core of that that idea and that finding was so ah, uh, now i feel like i need to have i mean i'm already 30 and i haven't had this yet does that mean it's over i i don't know if that 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 means it's over but maybe you maybe this maybe this is only one template maybe there's another template out there which is that you actually spend years 30 through 70 doing novel doing science, and yeah. uh uh stuff that would be an alternative besides the one and done uh approach so maybe maybe yeah. that's i was about to say that sounds like more work but from the description of it, he was, it was, I find it really weird that in a way it seemed like he was working all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. But then, the, you know, it was conflicting in the sense that at least for when he was in Berlin, he was based, he spent most of his days, it seemed more or less entertaining the king. So he wasn't really doing any work in that sense, although he had to, you know, I, mean, I think he still had this huge drive to, you know, work in the middle of the night to finish these things. But yeah, I find it weird how there was this, this at one point, 
in some points, this description of him working so much and constantly giving talks and all these things. And at other points, the description of him just meeting people, but basically him talking the entire time and never letting anyone else talk, which I guess also relates to our point about vanity from that you mentioned in the first part. Absolutely. No, I think this is the other thing that stands out to me about his return to Europe is that he just couldn't stand being there, particularly in Berlin. So I've got a couple quotes uh, direct from from Fumbold here, which he described uh, himself initially in Berlin as, quote, isolated and as a stranger to describe his sort of, you know, feeling of being there. And then uh, another choice passage, uh, choice line was he feel he felt, quote, buried in the ruins of an unhappy fatherland. Why did I not stay in the forest at the Orinoco or on the high ridges of the Andes? Um, And then going on to say that, quote, court life robs even the most intellectual of their genius and freedom. And uh, going to your point about him spending the majority of his time kind of being a a scientific celebrity, entertaining people, engaging in evidently very magnificent disquisition for these people, but not necessarily doing the the work of, of furthering his scientific ideas, though definitely getting them out there into the sort of popular consciousness it seems like yeah but it sounds like his his meetings with the king were the 19th century equivalent of committee meetings in which he was basically just caught up for the like large majority of his life yeah yeah but um i have one point about that just occurred to me that i found kind of interesting is that you know as as you just mentioned he talks about wanting to leave europe uh, multiple times and he wants to go on expeditions and tries to arrange them but when you actually look at what he did is he had the five years in South America and then a year in Russia and that's it, right? He, he had two trips in his entire life and he just, I mean, I, you know, you, you have this idea of, you know, I mean, the subtitle here is The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt, but there was basically, well, two, I guess that is, that those are two adventures, yes. But uh, I think what, what kind of I, almost didn't realize whilst reading this part is just that he basically never went on an adventure he was constantly wanted to but never could absolutely exactly and i think what what kind of stands out to me about that is it was it was sort of like what we were talking about earlier is what drives him to to have the strong desire to to be on the road to be to be out there to go on these expeditions and part of it is certainly that there's something out there to find but part of it is just this like he just felt uncomfortable at home. He didn't want to be there. And there was something about the, even though he was living this lavish, incredible lifestyle, the life of the party and, 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 and going in these circles and, you know, lots of stuff, you'd look and be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a pretty solid, yeah. as far as lives go, I could imagine a lot worse. And yet <laughs> there was this constant sense of like, man, like I just need to get out of here and get back out there onto the road and that sort of stuff. That was clearly this huge motivating thing that was always present in him was this sense of this desire to be somewhere else, to keep going, to get back out there, to be on the move. Yeah. And I guess it must have been I mean part of me wonders though like how much he really wanted that though and how much he just said he wanted it because I mean, it's difficult for me to tell whether to what extent he really tried to go on tr- expeditions because I mean, of course, the, the, you know, in this book, Wolf mentions, you know, how he constantly, you know, was going in circles with the East India Company and these kind of things. And of course, it was difficult politically if basically all the countries were at war with each other all the time. I guess that makes it a bit difficult to actually cross borders. 
But I also wonder, like a guy with that standing, like he could, I mean, I feel like he could have done some sort of expedition if he really wanted to. I don't know, like go to the North Pole via Norway or something. I don't know. Like it seemed to me like someone of his standing and his fame and maybe not his money anymore, but you know, with, with all of that, it seems to me he could have maybe done another expedition within the 30 years between, yeah, between the two that he did in his life. So I wonder at, at just, uh, sometimes like to what extent he actually, yeah, really, really wanted to go on adventures and in what case it was, yeah, I don't know. But do, you, do you know what I'm trying to get at? I know exactly what you're trying to get. I think, I think I'm pretty sympathetic to his, to his plight there. So I, there's, there's a couple things that stand out to me about that. One is that, uh, and of course this, this goes without saying to some level, but it was as the, it was the time truly before mass tourism, which is really a concept that begins to exist in the 1950s, as we understand it now. That's when essentially we see this, this exponential upturn in what we consider tourism today. And so uh, I think there's definitely, an, it's, it's an important point to make, which is that it's, it, that concept is like, oh, I'm just going to go somewhere uh, outside of Europe, particularly, wasn't really the same. Sure, there are the there is uh, basically like there is this thing in Russia. I think probably around this time called the Grand Tour, uh, which was you know going to Paris, Berlin, etc., and, and whatever. So people did travel uh, within Europe and that sort of stuff. But I don't think that the same notion just like oh, I'm just gonna head out somewhere and and do do something. So that's that's one thing. But I definitely, I think what it is is that like when you're before you've done anything significant, and for Humboldt this was you know in his twenties or whatever, you're not beholden to anyone it's easy to go out there and do something big and to have this opportunity where it's like, well, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to do this. But then when you come back and now everyone from the uh, King of Prussia on down wants something from you and expects something from you. And you're now embedded in, you know, this, this web of, of expectation and responsibility and that sort of stuff. And in, in a sense, we just call that adulthood usually. Um, but in, in Humboldt's case, it was, even more dramatic because he was so, you know, like literally the king wanted shit from him and everything. And then also the the fame and, you know, people wanted to hear from him, wanted, to show up, wanted him to show up at their parties, that sort of stuff. And so I just think that, I do think the, I don't think he was just saying it. I think he truly wanted to go out there. And I think he, in a sense, truly tried in the way that any of us are, are likely to try once we get to that point in our lives. And... Uh, that it's just that stricture of having responsibility and being uh, an adult, and especially one that's successful and, and having people ask a lot for them. I think once you get to that point in life, it's really difficult to transcend that, even if you have all the resources in the world. And sometimes even because you have all the resources in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, to some extent also then he had the responsibility of sharing the stuff that he found out in south america right i mean he yeah like in the chapter nine it says he brought back some sixty thousand plant specimens six thousand of which were wait is that a sentence six thousand species of which oh yeah sorry wait sorry can you just just can you pass the sentence he brought back some sixty thousand plant specimens six thousand species of which almost two thousand were new to european botanists yeah i think um I mean, 
it's the the two thousand of the six thousand he brought back were uh, new to European botanists. Yeah, but he brought down thick sixty thousand. It says just before that. Those are specimens. They're not necessarily d- different oh, species. So there's yes, multiple okay. specimens. That was of retarded. Yeah, sorry, you're right. <laughs> I confused specimen with species. Yes. Um, yeah. Anyway, thousands of. Sp- Specimens and species. I, so etymologically, I, guess, I think you're. you're <laughs> uh, I, I can see where the confusion, confusion came from. Comes yeah. In. Anyway, um, I wonder more like you know if if you're the person who collected them or with your team and you know where stuff is from and you have your personal experiences that just this 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 very not in a negative way unspecific knowledge about the place that's then linked to where you took these these species from um, or specimens from. You, I guess you do have a responsibility to share with the with the best botanists and whatever in Europe your knowledge, not to just you know go off again. Yeah. Um, because in that, in some sense, then it's a nice personal um, adventure, but it's it becomes less scientific if you just then leave again and don't do anything with that knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's let's dive into that and just to put a pin in the sort of Berlin discussion. Uh, there were a couple things that I thought you know to sort of summarize what I think about his relationship to Berlin was, was that I don't think he hated Berlin, though he did claim to, so much as he hated what, what it represented, which was not being on the road. And so I think it's that kind of is what I think, my interpretation based off of what Wolf is saying, that that's kind of how I, it, it occurred to me that he, he felt about the whole thing. Also, there was this line she quoted from him, which I suspect may be the greatest ever description of Berlin, which is uh, that it is, uh, quote, a dancing carnivalesque necropolis, which I, I feel it. like uh, <laughs> is just the most perfect thing I've ever heard anyone say about Berlin. Uh, and I don't most, think it's... Uh, lots of people read that and go, yeah, sounds good. Exactly. I think that that's, that's humble. I probably meant it as a negative thing, but I think people who love yeah. Berlin are like, yes, that's exactly what I love about it. That's, that is <laughs> the dancing carnivalesque necropolis. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite city. I mean, to be fair, I have no idea what the the Berlin of 200 years ago, how that relates to the Berlin of today, because I think, if I remember correct, at some point it said that the the Humboldt University that his brother founded, I think was the first university there, right? I think that was Hmm. in part what he hated about it, is that there was just no higher education, basically. That's Um, certainly what he he said about it, was uh, basically that it was illiterate, I think was one of the words he used to describe it. Yeah, so I wonder, like, to some extent, yeah, just how it relates and... You know, for example, Tegel, which they always, which she always writes about as separate places, which I guess they were then, you know, and now you have, that's where the airport of Berlin is, right? So it's, Berlin has expanded and, you know, pot, also like, you know, when they went to Potsdam to Sanssouci, it sounded like this massive trip today. It's like a half an hour by train or something. So yeah, I have no idea how it relates, but so, yeah, I wonder whether to some extent it actually was the way he described it. <laughs> it was just, yeah, not a place yeah. of, of, I think it probably wasn't as bad as he was described. I think he was just being a bitch about it. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, um, so he came back. There were, let's say, like maybe three major books um, that resulted from his trip. Views of Nature was this one that basically gave the scientific overview, kind of like the, the scientific theoretical abstract account. There was the personal narrative, which was the travelogue. This is the on the ground. Here's what I saw and everything. And then there was the, I don't have the name in front of me, but the essays on geography and plants. Um, I think that is the title, yeah. And that one is more specifically about the specific things, um, his findings about plants. And, and, I mean, and there was Cosmos, right? Well, so Cosmos is 
30 years later. I wouldn't say that. I, I, I have to admit, I'm always slightly confused by the chronology in this book because, you know, she jumps around quite a bit. So I'm never, I'm never entirely sure when which book was written. I always thought it was a kind of fairly continuous stream of books. That's, I, I mean, the way I, uh, so I also don't have the exact chronology uh, in mind. It wasn't, it wasn't clear to me exactly like here's the thing, but it, it did seem like here was a cluster of okay. um, three books that mm-hmm. sort of addressed three different ways of parsing Humboldt's initial trip. And then Cosmos okay. was his magnum opus saying, look, after, because he needed Russia for that one, because uh, as we'll, we'll talk about with the Russia the section, he needed that comparative sort of um, thing. And so maybe it's not necessarily to spell out exactly what was in each of these books, but especially views of nature and personal narrative. Basically what he was doing that was tremendously unique, and I found this super interesting, super fascinating, super compelling, was that he evidently was the first person to really combine from uh, Andrea Wolf, quote, lively prose and rich landscape descriptions with scientific observations in a blueprint for much of nature writing today. And this concept that it's not just, oh, here's, you know, some detailed description of it. Here's something that's actually supposed to immerse you in the experience, what it was, it was, it was going to be like, which uh, happened in, evidently in both those books. And then connecting that to the ideas to say, here's, here's, here's what it all means. Here's the Here's the scientific interpretation of it. As travel writing, uh, some of the quotes that I have here are, someone said that he wrote with a painter's eye and a poet's feeling. Among travelers, what Wordsworth is among poets. Uh, And I thought that was super cool to sort of think of him as an architect of that tradition. And I, you know, we did talk about this last week. How do we know, how do we trust the author? How do we trust the wolf when she says, oh, Humboldt was the first to do X? It's like, okay, maybe, maybe not, maybe. Uh, I, I do, I do, I do sort of buy this one though. And I found it really cool to think about him being the architect of this tradition. One that I certainly consider myself when I'm, when I'm writing, that's what I'm trying to do is how do we connect, you know, some sort of on the ground accounts of what it actually looks like to live and experience life along with the abstract intellectual ideas of how to make sense of it and how to interpret what one is seeing and feeling. Can you provide maybe some other examples of books or authors that have done that? Because this is something that I'm just not very familiar with at all. Um, So to me, this is, yeah, I don't think I've, yeah, I think by coincidence, I just haven't read books like that. Sounds like from, from an academic perspective, The best description of what this method is comes from an anthropologist named Clifford Geertz. And he was uh, writing this account, at least, coming up with these ideas in in the early 1970s. And he's this really epicentral figure in anthropology, where essentially the modern era of anthropology is in many ways a response to the work of Clifford Geertz. And his idea was this notion of what he called thick description. And the idea is that in order to capture the the way of living this is someone's way of living for him as an anthropologist what he was trying to do was trying to say oh i went here i saw these people i I engaged meaningfully in their their way of life and i'm coming back to describe what it is that i learned about them specifically in humanity more generally and in order to do that what you had to have um was this uh appreciation of both the specific on the ground moments of, of of what happened and what you actually saw in the concrete manifestations of it and then connect that back to to the account so that's the basic idea in terms of the most direct 
uh, my favorite and what I consider to be the most direct, explicit academic account of what it means to do this. And also, he does a great fucking job of it himself because he's one of the greatest all-time academic writers, Clifford Geertz. So that's definitely one important point, I'd say, from the academic's perspective. And then in terms of just, you know, random people who I think do this well, for example, Oliver Sacks, the neuroscientist, um, whom you may have heard of um, in connection with neuroscience, neurology, or he wasn't a neuroscientist, he was a neurologist, very much not a neuroscientist, in my opinion, very much a neurologist. Um, And his thing, what he did, was that he operating, you know, this is early stuff was around that same time of Geertz that I was talking about in the, the late 1970s, that sort of thing. And what he did was he took this classical tradition of case studies in neurology, where you actually go through and say, what is the manifestation of this neurological pathology in the person's life as they actually live it? And so he would go through and say, look, this is how this unfolds. This is the human impact of, of, of what is happening. And then uh, connect that back to the medical literature on what was known about the disease and, and what was happening in the brain and breaking it down from a more philosophical perspective of like, okay, so here is this person's, you know, for example, memory, um, you know, some sort of amnesia or something like that. Or he studied a lot with Parkinsonians and uh, uh, Parkinsonianism and that sort of stuff. So, okay, here's this, here's this thing. Here's what it looks like in actuality. And then what do we know about what's happening in the brain and what does it mean to have one's memory fall out from underneath oneself? So that's an example of someone who practiced that and that sort of thing. So it really ranges not just from nature writing, which is, of course, uh, if you look at the other books that, that Wolf has published, that's clearly her uh, area of expertise, but closer to um, certainly what I'm more interested in and a little bit closer to our interest in psychology and cognitive science and everything. Yeah, connecting connecting those lived experiences and the concrete manifestations of life with the abstract intellectual academic theories. And you agree that that's that that Humboldt seems to have been one of the first people to really start that. Yeah, I, I going back to our theme of you know this is partially an exercise in helping Cody learn about romanticism and figures of that you know sort of era, which my intellectual history knowledge does not extend that back that far. But yeah, so the tradition Oliver Sacks would have been working in goes back quite a ways. He was he was drawing on this Soviet psychologist named uh, Alexander Luria who published his stuff, I believe, in, in the 1950s, but the most famous of his book is Mind of a Memnist, which describes basically uh, this dude, this Soviet dude, who never forgot anything. And this is one of the, uh, one of if you've ever like looked into like memory palaces and the method of loci and, and that sort of stuff, those memory mnemonic techniques and everything. But basically what was happening was there was this, Guy and everything he ever saw, he placed along the side of the road by, I can't remember which road it was, but, you know, let's say close to his like little village or whatever. And he could just go back along that road in his memory palace and, and retrieve that. And for whatever reason, he was unable not to do this. And basically, uh, Loria explored how he couldn't function because he couldn't forget anything. And so then we learn about the importance of forgetting things through through that and everything. And this goes back to the, the very early, the very first neurologist did this. For example, Charcot, who's considered the, the father of uh, neurology, which would be late, late 1800s. And then Freud, of course, is the sort of pinnacle of that pre-modern case study thing. That's, that's, that's obviously what he was doing in, in interpretation of dreams and, and that sort of thing was, here's a case study. Let's, let's talk about it. 
So anyway, that tradition goes back to around 1851. Not anyway, but the point is, yeah. is that I, I do buy it that uh, Humboldt did this in an important way. Yeah, and just as a brief aside, you know, I guess last time we questioned some of the statements she made about you know Humboldt being the first to do X, Y, or Z, or how influential he really was at times. I was questioning it a bit, but I think in this, in the, in parts three and four, there were quite a lot of direct quotes from people you'd assume know roughly what they're talking about at the time. Who, yeah, I mean, basically she's summarizing it in earlier chapters. So I think a lot of our slight skepticism might have been slightly misplaced or. Uh, not misplaced, but like might have been, I think, well, I think I buy it more now that I've read the, the other two parts where lots of people, I mean, it seems like he was really by, really admired by huge influential figures at the time from all spectrums, spectra of life. I think there's no doubt about it that he was admired and considered uh, uh, to be a lot of these things. Whether or not he actually was is a separate question as a matter of fact, but I agree with you that that does lend... Uh, a lot of credibility to the claim. Um, Russia. Talk about Russia? Okay. That's kind of what I have next on my... Yeah, I mean, I just have a random... <laughs> I have no order to my comments, so let's let's talk about Russia next. So this, as, as we mentioned, it was his second big trip. Definitely less grand um, and in a way less ambitious than the South America one. But as part of his motivation was, besides the general inclination to go somewhere and do something, was it seemed, it seemed to really be hinging on this idea of the comparative method, that he went to a particular landscape, particularly a mountainous one in South America. And in order to get the level of understanding that he wanted to get out of it, he felt like he needed to go to a similar comparable landscape in a completely different area, and thereby understand better the sort of to use a word we've been we've been using interconnectedness of everything how these two very different landscapes are connected to one another and have similarities and isomorphisms but then also to understand what was unique about these places and be like oh here's a similar landscape but it doesn't have x so therefore x actually um can be you know in order to get those sort of inferences of it he needed to go somewhere else and do that so that was that was really why he wanted to go to somewhere in Central Asia, ideally uh, the Himalayas, India, and that sort of stuff. But as a as a backup plan, as it, as it actually happened, the um, sort of steppes of Russia and then a couple of different mountain ranges within the Russian Empire. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely a much. I mean, it's almost it almost feels weird to call it a less ambitious adventure in that sense because it seems like for the most part he was, you know, the the Russian Tsar just wanted to know some more stuff about how they could mine certain minerals or whatever and then along the way he kind of just did his thing um, so it's almost more like he had you know just a work trip that was interspersed by two or three small little expeditions he made that he wasn't supposed to make um, I mean one thing I found really interesting is that he then I mean this is a you know for him in particular a very small point but that he actually predicted where diamonds would be in Russia and he was the first person I guess to, to show where they would be that was something where, I don't know, I feel like, you know, I have a much bigger point about this later, but I feel like a lot of his scientific work is very vague in that sense, um, you know, trying to connect everything with everything um, and thereby not, I don't know, it's questionable how much you actually achieve by doing that. But it was really surprising to me to see like, oh, he, he is capable of making specific predictions that actually turn out, in this case, at least to be correct. And that go against, yeah, the, the mainstream idea 
I guess that's the critical part. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was that was pretty badass. So definitely this, both Andrea Wolf and Humboldt didn't feel that Russia had the same magic as South America. Which is, um, I think, to be expected. That the, the, the Russian tundra isn't quite as fun as the jungle. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And so that that is definitely the kind of introduction, the introductory passages of how Wolf describes it is, uh, yeah, basically the steps, the Russian steps were pretty boring, pretty uniform, yeah. not that different from what one might find in Germany or England and have this like really tremendously undifferentiated landscape, unlike what we would find in uh, South America. So I feel so sorry for the guy sometimes. It's like, yeah, finally an expedition. And then he just basically sees an extended version of what he already knows. Yeah. There was, um, so we talked about mosquitoes last time. And oh, there was yeah, another again. great passage um, that I'm sure you uh, also pro- probably stood out to you for, for, for that reason. But nope. uh, I'm going to quote this at length because I, I think it's just such a great description of like the actuality of travel, especially the particular trip that Humboldt was taking. This is from page 207. Uh, quote, the thermometer climbed from six degrees at night to 30 degrees during the day. Humboldt, uh, Celsius, of course. Humboldt and his team were plagued by mosquitoes, just as he and Bonplant had been during their Orinoco expedition some 30 years previously. To protect themselves, they now wore heavy leather masks. These masks had a small opening for the eyes covered with mesh made of horsehair to see through. They protected against the pernicious insects, but also trapped the air. It was unbearably hot. None of this mattered. Humboldt was in a great mood because he was liberated from the controlling hand of the Russian administration. They traveled day and night, sleeping in their jolting carriages. It felt like a, quote, sea voyage on land, Humboldt wrote, as they sailed across the monotonous plains as if on an ocean. They averaged more than 100 miles a day and sometimes covered almost 200 miles in 24 hours. The Siberian highway was as good as the best roads in Europe. They traveled faster, Humboldt probably noted, than any European express courier. Uh, and so that that kind of summarizes the day-to-day of what actually they were looking at. It's like they were making a, a bunch of progress across nothing in particular. Uh, had these ridiculous leather masks on to protect them with, against the mosquitoes. Um, it, 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 like, look, it doesn't sound like fun. Um, yeah. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, so, yeah. I wonder sometimes what he found so great about these expeditions, but I guess he loved the seeing new things or whatever that to me is this outstanding question like uh obviously when you and i go somewhere we don't quite like we have to don the leather masks and whatever but still going anywhere beyond the sort of like simplest tourist desperate destinations it's kind of exasperating for all sorts of reasons um it's just so much more comfortable uncomfortable to go out and go somewhere that is to stay at home which leaves me with this question that i think we don't ask enough uh, a question about travel, which is why would anyone want to do this? Um, like what, what is it like he, he could like, here's two options. You could either be chilling with the King of Prussia, eating lavish meals and entertaining people at court and, you know, go to bed in your own bedroom, or you could go sleep in the jolting carriage across the steps of Russia, looking at nothing, especially spectacular, uh, eating God knows what. And wearing a leather mask to protect yourself from the the mosquitoes. Which of those two options are you going to go for? Maybe that's why he was such a famous figure, because he was the only person who actually chose the second option. 
But I think that's the mystery of it, is that there is, for a lot of us, and especially for any people, you know, like myself, who identify with this inclination to travel, there's something about that that does speak to a person. There is something, uh, maybe it's only retrospective, I don't know, um, but I, I think there's there's a little bit of a deep mystery here about why humans have this inclination to go out there and see something and experience something other than what it is they're familiar with. And I think Humboldt definitely was this archetype of that. But I think it's present in all of us in in some in some ways. But what what is it for you? I mean, I have to admit, I'm not someone who really travels much. I always imagine it's a kind of just curiosity for the unknown. Yeah, just curiosity of what's what's there, and maybe. I mean, again, in Humboldt, I guess it was fairly uh, explicit this sense of trying to gain new perspectives on things he knew and testing out new ideas but couldn't that kind of be an implicit curiosity in most people you know i'm not sure that i know what i think about this question yet um i to me it is the mystery of trying to think about this this topic at a deeper level because yeah you can say oh yeah you're just interested in going out there and and having new experiences that sort of stuff but I don't think that fully explains that there's lots of ways to have new experiences. Why this kind of mode? Why is that such a a thing that, that draws so many people? I mean, is it so different or is it just we give it a specific name? I mean, if I, you know, explore the city I'm new to or whatever because I just moved here, I don't call that travel because I'm in the same place. It's just when it's somewhere else, then we call it travel. Isn't it kind of the same principle? I think of this as the Walden problem, which may come up when we uh, perhaps next time talk about Henry David Thoreau. But clearly Thoreau thought that, look, you don't have to go to the fucking Russian steppes to go experience something new. Like the pond a couple towns over will do just fine. So I think I think it's an outstanding question. I think to me, at an abstract sense, what it means to travel in this sort of conceptual way is to put yourself in an environment where your habits and your actions are not well suited to that environment. So that is the defining characteristic of being at home somewhere, um, being comfortable somewhere, being familiar with a place, is that you know which actions are going to lead to rewarding experiences and you basically have a whole behavioral system for how to navigate that environment relatively successfully. And um, the defining characteristic of travel is, in my opinion, in my sort of framework for it, that you are putting yourself in a position actively where your habits and your, your sort of actions that you're used to undertaking are no longer matched to your environment. And so I think it's a question of, uh, okay, you're going, you know, to the next town over, or you're going halfway across the world. It's not a function of how far you go, but how, the extent to which that mismatch between action and environment is the case. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be the case with Humboldt though, right? I'm not sure that we got like a lot for him of... it's something else. Yeah, like I said, I don't know. I'm 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 working on the 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 overall the overall idea here. So you, you might be right. I think I do think there is more more going on here, and um, you know the the motivations for it and the experience of it's complicated. I'm also not sure that we got enough data um, on his Russian expedition. Yeah, like we know that he went to like some mountain ranges, saw some stuff, predicted about some diamonds. You know, had a tough time with the mosquitoes again and everything like that. But yeah, I'm not sure that I I I, I would be comfortable 
saying that I understand that I don't think that penetrated fully his perspective and his experience and his his mind during during his travels and everything. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder maybe she, whether she's going to explain more about this in part five, maybe, or it's just an open question. That, you know, I would definitely like a an epilogue of sorts, or I don't know if she'll put it as an epilogue or, a, or whatever. I definitely hope there's a chapter on like, okay, given that we worked our way through all of the plots of of um, you know Humboldt's thing, here's what I actually make of of his thing beyond just like, oh yeah, he was the first to understand the interconnectedness of nature. Um, I do hope that there is a sort of, after he's dead, here's what I make of his life. Um, so yeah, I wonder. I mean, I'm just looking at the chapters. Of I don't think five. she will. What I there, know I mean, about an Andrea from her, from her writing, uh, I don't think she's going to do that, um, yeah, but I'd like sure her either. to be. Yeah, well, I guess we'll see. So we've got uh, about 10 minutes left here in this section, and I do want to talk about the the Darwin thing. So I don't want to cut short our discussion of Russia. Maybe we can uh, return to the travel stuff next time in our sort of summary remarks and everything like that. Yeah, exactly. But I do want to spend thing, yeah. um, some time talking about Darwin. So that, that was this along with the Goetze passages was maybe some of my favorite passages in the, mm -hmm. the book. The, I like this chapter a lot. Yeah, I thought it's very cute, Darwin's oh, yeah, <laughs> admiration for, for Humboldt and then his subsequent, oh, I guess, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, do you want to start then? It seems like I, you have I do, some. yeah. So I've got, a, I've got a couple notes on this. So... Basically, Humboldt was this huge influence on Darwin. And um, a few different points in this, but basically Humboldt's personal narrative, the travelogue specifically, though I'm just, he, he read all the other stuff, of course, but it was definitely the personal narrative travelogue, uh, that along with Charles Lyell's geology was, was the book that the most impacted Darwin's thinking. And the way I would describe this impact was that essentially Humboldt modeled for Darwin the kind of intellectual that he wanted to be um, in uh, like Darwin found in Humboldt, this template, this way of doing things that he wanted to do. And he was like, there was this really strong resonance where he read personal narrative and my sort of editorializing, it was that he looked at that and he said, I could do that. And yeah. that is uh, like, I understand what's happening here. And I feel like I could do this myself. And it turned out he was right. Um, but basically there's this quote directly from Darwin that Wolf gives us, quote, my admiration of his famous personal narrative, part of which I almost know by heart, determined me to travel in distant countries and led me to volunteer as a naturalist in Her Majesty's ship Beagle. And so it started off the whole adventure for Darwin on, on the Beagle and, and everything that turned into his, his later theorizing. And he also... He was so inside the head of Humboldt that he wrote out entire passages of personal narrative just to get Humboldt's voice in his name and under his fingers. And uh, I love that so much. And he basically saw South America through Humboldt's description of it by carrying Humboldt's descriptions around with him uh, on his own travels. I really think that's how he learned to observe was that he saw a, you know, a, a mountain scene, a mountainscape and encountered it knew what Humboldt had already said about it because he'd studied that text so deeply and was able to simultaneously hold his own observations, what he was seeing, and Humboldt's observations together. And that was really this, this way that he got into his own incisive perspective. And then after returning from his Beagle voyage, he published his own narrative. And Darwin's sister went so far as to say that he had, quote, probably from reading so much of Humboldt, 
got his phraseology and the kind of flowery French expressions which he used. And so a lot of what we think of, you know, uh, I've never read Darwin's voyage, but I know a lot of scientists who have who say like, oh yeah, it's this, this great thing. And I have no doubt that it is. And it's really interesting to know that that was essentially Darwin's replication of what Humboldt had, 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 had innovated his own take on how to do that. And coming from that profound understanding and having engaged in the material himself, uh, he was able to do that to almost certainly an even greater effect than, than Humboldt was. Um, and I thought that was really cool. And in a way that to me, after everything we've read is the thing that I feel like was Humboldt's greatest contribution was that he taught Darwin how to think. He's like, this is how to go into the world and to think critically about what you're seeing. And Humboldt obviously was very good at it, um, but Darwin used it to this level. Nothing Humboldt said really changed the world in the same way that, that, that Darwin did. And, and Darwin wouldn't have been able to do that, one might think, if he didn't have that template to work from. Amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think what's... So there's two related points after this. Is The, the first is that I think, especially for... You know, Darwin, it seemed like, was very confused when he went on this voyage, right? I mean, he just, well, he'd, he'd stopped his medical training, right? And then he was supposed to train to be a, whatever, minister or whatever. Um, and then he was, well, he was doing that, but clearly he wasn't interested in it. So I think in, he was in this, like, really weird period where he just didn't know what to do with himself. And it seems like he then just read this book and went like, this this is it right this is something this is how i what i can do at least for you know the next few years or whatever so i think it's really interesting that it it seemed to get darwin started on this journey but what's the interest the other the second point then is and that's what i find almost more interesting is that it seemed that darwin took it as a starting point but then somewhat diverged from that i mean in one sense i guess darwin never seemed to have this the personality or the need that humboldt had to be around all the time to, you know, talk to people all day to go on trips and all these kind of things. And what, you know, seemed like to be a much quieter, uh, more introverted person. But what I found interesting scientifically is that from what I can tell, the big difference is that Humboldt took all these measurements and had all these facts and all these things and wanted to put it kind of all into one thing that kind of explained everything or showed everything. Whereas Darwin took all of this and then formulated one specific principle from it. At least, in, I mean, of course, he did more than that. But you know, the one, the big difference to me is that Cosmos Humboldt's uh, um, Opus Magnum is a piece that seems to describe everything in a kind of pop sci kind of way. I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, whereas Darwin seemed to his Magnum Opus seems to be something where Opus Magnum uh, seems to be something where he took all of these things to then articulate one specific thought. And that to me is a huge, you know, you see what I mean? Like they start off in a similar way, but then they diverge quite strongly after that. And that's what I find quite interesting. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I think that's a very, very astute distinction is that Humboldt seems to have been more of a collector. And at least in retrospect, what we you know, sort of think of for these two different figures is, of course, we associate Darwin with his his idea and natural selection and, and all that sort of stuff. Though, of course, he did do lots of other things. 
and Humboldt, we can't really look at and say, oh yeah, well he had this sense that like everything in nature was connected, but that's not really like a theory in that's the in the way yeah. that. Uh, he certainly had this literary appreciation for for everything, and it was everything was meaningful to him. I think that's what drove him to be a collector um, was that each individual thing was a piece in the piece of the puzzle and everything like that. As it was for Darwin, but yeah, you're right. the The projects that they were embarked on and the, and the what they did with that mass amount of information was was very different. And I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning was that there's a sense in which Humboldt, what he did was give raw data to people who would come through and create the actual fundamental ideas. For example, Darwin. Um, Also, Charles Lyell, who the connection wasn't drawn in this book, but uh, besides being alluded to. She alluded to it, but I think uh, it suffice to say that like that connection uh, is very important and, and and that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, that that seems to be that seems to be the the fundamental thing uh, that that Humboldt's left was this influence on people who actually went on to have some of these world shaking ideas in the next the next sort of generation of scientists. Yeah, definitely. I think the I read on something similar that to something that you just mentioned, which is, I mean, there's a famous quote that it seems it's not entirely clear who said it, but um, all science is either physics or stamp collecting. I think Humboldt was definitely in the stamp collecting business of just taking all the facts, you know, uh, or I guess like Pokemon, he's trying to catch them all. He's really trying to like get everything in there. Um, whereas, and I think Darwin started off maybe that way, but then came much closer to um yeah trying to articulate specifically theories and i mean what's also interesting to me is that my supervisor and i have also talked about this because we had one study which was fairly broad lots of data you know sift through the data find things not like in a p-hacking way but in a exploratory way and um we we explicitly i don't i don't think he's i don't know whether he's read this but we explicitly talked about you know some science is you have a piece of like rainforest or whatever and you just go into it to see what's there and then you just say hey look this there's this thing there's this thing there's this thing um and then you kind of draw some vague connections between them and the project that we did was a bit like that and i found that very hard and very unsatisfying Whereas I think I'm much more towards the area of let's actually think this through. Like we have a few amounts of facts, let's create some theories and then make specific experiments. Yeah. And I think maybe, yeah, I think Humboldt is maybe the extreme example of this going into the forest. And I mean, he's literally, that's what he did. And then collecting things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, there's another thing I, I was just curious about, which is that, um, so uh, there's this book, uh, we've talked about Bob Bryson before, but we've got his short history of nearly everything, uh, which is his uh, extensive history of science and essentially the processes behind it. I was just curious from a different non-Humboldt invested perspective, um, whether or not Humboldt was mentioned in, in this book, which is, you know, we can def- I would not consider Bryson an authority. Uh, on on any scientific matter, I uh, uh, yeah. would say though that whatever you have to say about the book, it covers some ground, and it mentions a lot of people who we'd not think of as big names today. So it's not just exclusively dealing with the big names, the Newtons or the the Darwins and everything. But there's lots of people in here, and so uh, what I found is that uh, Humboldt was only he was only mentioned twice in the book, 
another n- none of them were for uh, his findings. They were mostly both of them were for social connection. Or what, the first one was for social connection. But one was actually a quote, um, which I thought was funny, and I don't think has appeared in the Andrea Wolf book. Um, but I'll I'll read from uh, here. I'll just read the the full sentence in, in context. But um, mm-hmm. Alexander von Humboldt, yet another friend, may have had Agassiz at least partly in mind when he observed that there are three stages in scientific discovery. First, people deny that it is true. Then they deny that it is important. Finally, they credit the wrong person. Um, and uh, I liked that uh, that sort of theory of scientific progress, evidently quoted from yeah. from Humboldt. So. Humboldt said that apparently, or yeah, that was that was. I looked up in, but I didn't know. I looked up in the references, uh, and it wasn't like Bryson was reading from Humboldt's diary or something like that. It was another book that he was quoting. Who was quoting? So we'd have to go back and look at that. We'd. I mean, it's possible, but I'm just saying more fact checking needs to be done because it's poss. It is. It is. It is. It is is possible that there's. There's. I mean, there's, there's still links we draw out. Anyway, there's uh, maybe we can save our discussion of Cosmos and, and Thoreau for um, tomorrow or for, for, for the next tomorrow. episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll just talk about uh, the book every day of this week until we exactly. know. But maybe we can save it for next time because we uh, have fewer chapters to cover. Um, yeah, it's much less. It's 70 pages. It's half roughly here. Yeah. Uh, but there is one more thing I want to say about travel, which I think you partially covered, but I just want to sort of... Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a couple things that I definitely uh, found really interesting in that. And it goes back to Darwin's 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 voyage. And so basically the the context, which, you know, anyone who's heard scientific discussions about Darwin is probably like familiar with this, but his father famously was really against him undertaking this voyage um, and said it was, quote, a wild scheme and a useless undertaking. Um, and I think that in an important way, this is a totally accurate description that like Darwin's father was right in, 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 in a really important way. And, and one of the hallmarks of, of travel is, is that it's one of the least goal directed of behaviors that we engage in in the course of modern life. And so it, from the perspective of like what achievement is likely to result from it, the, the sort of expedition that Darwin went on is marked by disutility. And the father was right about that. Um, and then it was Darwin's uncle who convinced his father to let him go, basically saying, quote, uh, if I saw Charles now absorbed in professional studies, it would not be advisable to interrupt them. But uh, <laughs> this isn't really the case. Uh, and I don't think anyway. will be the case with him. Um, and That's such I, a great I love way this. of saying he's just fucking about all day anyway. <laughs> and and well I, actually, I actually really subscribe. I think this is a great heuristic. I think that when one finds oneself unengaged by school or work or whatever one is currently involved with in daily life, that's when it's time to hit the road. That's when you need to, something's not working, you need to shake things up, you need to experience something different to free your mind from, um, you know, whatever it is that's sort of encumbering at home. And, you know, so Darwin goes on this big expedition with the beagle, as we know, like went around collecting, looking at plants and shit and turtles and whatever. Um, and he, it was also funny to note that he had a certain level of misery on board the Beagle, just like we've noted from, from, from Humboldt, which is, there were a couple quotes that I love, I thought were hilarious. Uh, quote, I loathe, I abhor the sea and all ships which sail on it. That's Darwin. And then I also, uh, uh he says, uh, also quote, I hate every wave of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> um, but so anyway, yeah, he went on a trip to South America and like I said, you know, like was carrying Humboldt's observations with him, which I think was important. But then, um, you know, when, when he came back and retrospectively was looking on it, he said, you know, ultimately uh, he wrote that, uh, quote, the voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. Which, of course, stands in stark contrast to the evident disutility noted by his father and everything. And I guess to me, the, the deeper point here is that disutility in prospect leads to the greatest utility sometimes in retrospect. So, you know, from the point of view of like, oh, what goals am I going to accomplish by going out and, you know, having this experience? You have no idea because there are no specific goals that you're trying to do. And yet it has the ability to to redefine what one's goals are, what they should be, and, and the whole frame of reference and in, in which a person's working. And so by not committing yourself to a specific goal, by engaging this, in this sort of like apotheosis, non-goal-directed behavior, uh, you're able to engage more directly with what actually exists, what's out there and and, you know, your perspective on, on, on what you believe about it. And I think Darwin's voyage is very much a an example of that. And uh, the sort of denouement to this story between Darwin and Humboldt is that Humboldt, having read Darwin's stuff, they never, it took him a while to meet. Uh, but Humboldt loved Darwin's book, thought it was awesome, thought he'd done a great yeah, job. That was great. Uh, and that was heartwarming. And then... Yeah. Uh, they actually go on to meet um, on page uh, 242. Let me see if I have that right here. Um, they go on to meet. And basically, as you alluded to at the beginning, uh, Humboldt yeah. basically went on these like, he basically like never let anyone talk. He just sort of like go on. And apparently it was really interesting, but like he just couldn't shut up. And so, quote, Darwin was stunned. Several times he tried to get in a word, but eventually gave up. Humboldt was cheerful enough and paid him, quote, some tremendous compliments, but the old man just talked too much. Humboldt gushed on for three hours, chattering away, quote, beyond all reason, Darwin said. This is not how he envisaged <laughs> their first encounter. After all those years of worshiping Humboldt and of admiring book, his books, Darwin felt a little deflated, quote, but my anticipations were probably too high, he later admitted. And I think this goes to show another thing, which is that you shouldn't meet your heroes. They're never as good as they are in the book. Uh, don't meet your heroes. Um, yeah, and I mean, uh, I guess in this case, it was <laughs> it was maybe disappointing, but I think it was still. I think Darwin would still rather have met him than not met him, right? I felt like, to be honest, as someone who does a podcast where I talk to my heroes on a regular basis, uh, and who, like Darwin, tends to kind of like idolize people, uh, especially people whose works that I like, that sort of stuff. I'll just say that I very much resonated with Darwin's... Uh, Although maybe, yeah, I just realized actually if... Yeah, I mean, this meeting was, of course, much after Humboldt sent Darwin these fantastic letters, right? Saying like, oh, you you have a great career ahead of you. you you've done amazing work here. Yeah, just that probably would have been better. But yeah, I was actually going to ask, I mean, didn't... I guess I can take this out if, if you don't want to respond to this. But didn't you, isn't Louis Minand, Minand, whatever you pronounce his name? It seemed like I listened to your interview with him that he's one of your heroes. Uh, it seemed like you had a good time talking to him, though. Yeah, so that that one's a, a confusing one because he is uh, my he is one of my biggest heroes and he's also great. And there's a couple things on there. Uh, none of which I think are intrinsically negative, so I, I, I'm fine stating them. But like at the end of the day, what 
Louis Menendez is a writer. And so he's just, that's, that's his best form. He's never going to be as good right. uh, yeah. in any, like, any, as he is on the page. And so that, that's just a fact. I mean, it, part of it is that he's one of the great, greatest writers currently working in the English language, in my opinion. Um, but, so, but so, yeah, so there's, there's just intrinsically going to be a disconnect. And the same would be true, I imagine, of, of Humboldt's thing, if you're so um, connected in this, you know, personal narrative thing. Um, his personal narrative and then meeting him in person, of course, like it's just going to be hard to, yeah, there's just, there's just got to be a disconnect there because one of them's so monumentally good. Another thing is that when you are so intimately familiar with someone on the page and in their work, um, as you know, was basically my relationship with Manan. I actually had met him, uh, one or two times previously, uh, but never in depth as a conversation. Uh, you you get this really intimate relationship with someone who doesn't necessarily exist, right? Because it's your conception of who they are based off of what they've written and everything like that. And then the other thing is that they don't give a shit about you. Even if they like your work and, and everything <laughs> like that, you are still so... They are your hero. And uh, I'm not saying that Louis Vuitton was, um, uh, you know, like mean or anything. He was very nice. Uh, uh, but like, I'm not his hero. Um, You're some uh, guy who interviewed him, yeah. Humboldt uh, liked Darwin and thought he was going to go on and have a uh, prestigious career and thought he had done a great job with his work. Not his hero still. Doesn't really give that many shits about him uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so, yeah, for all these reasons. um, And like I said, none of those are intrinsically wrong or bad, uh, but those those are kinds of dynamics that one is going to encounter when one, you know, comes face to face with someone who you previously have only, uh, you know, partially worshipped on the the page. Yeah, I think it's a fair point that you made that, you know, your, your heroes or just people you admire, you admire them usually for one specific reason or for one thing that they did or whatever. And that thing is basically never being great to talk to in person. Even if they're perfectly fine in person, they won't be as great as the thing that they're known for. So, Absolutely. yeah, I guess apart from maybe a very few exceptions, no one's going to be able to live up to those expectations. Yeah, yeah. On that positive note. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, I guess um, next time we're going to read the end and have more of a bit of a grander, not grander, but like a more, you know, we've read everything then about his entire life. We've had an account of his entire life and then maybe we can... Yeah, we'll do do some overall themes and some, yeah, yeah. Yep, definitely. Yeah. yeah, so let's talk about Cosmos. Let's talk about Thoreau, whatever comes up there, and then the final section as we plan to read in the overall, yeah, the the overall perspective. Definitely. I also have a few points about science, which I'd be interested to hear your opinion about. But awesome. That's next time. Looking forward to hearing them. Cool.